Good morning. How is everyone this morning? That's good to hear. Excellent. Okay. So, today we continue our series in God's Good Design, a study in biblical manhood and womanhood. And just to put us on the map, we are at week six out of 12. So, uh, Ben, if you can throw that next slide up there. I need, I didn't put a sort of a you are here sticker, but that's where we are on the right hand side. So we started off several weeks ago with Eric sharing about God's design and creation. And we went through uh, three weeks focusing on uh, man's purpose and design and uh, hurdles and redemption. We're in the middle of three weeks doing the same thing for women. And then we're going to round out the entire series with a message on being together, united as men and women in the gospel. Now, today's message is, in some ways, a difficult one to give because of some obvious truths, like, I'm not a woman. It's not going to be a comedy show, but I'm just starting there. And some of you might wonder, well, why isn't this message being given by a woman? Well, the answer to that question is actually wrapped up in the content of this whole series. In fact, something we're going to come to in just a moment is a re-emphasis of how men and women are most definitely equal in the eyes of God, but they are different, and they are given different roles. And in Scripture, we have the role of, um, uh, of, of eldership and teaching Scripture in the church. Is That responsibility is given to men. But I also want to assure you that this message is not a bunch of men telling women what they think is wrong with them or what they think they should do. Where does this message come from? It comes primarily from two places. First of all, I hope you'll be pleased to hear it comes from the Word of God. It comes from Scripture. Secondly, it comes from the input of many women who have been helpful in preparing it. That's in different ways. There was a questionnaire that was used, and I thank all the women who, uh, who were asked to respond to that and who provided very uh, candid and helpful responses, and from other conversations as well. So in some ways it's difficult, and in some ways it's just the same as any other week. It's also a little difficult because there are some passages in Scripture that are difficult to interpret, especially around women's roles. And I'll give you, you know, spoiler alert, we're not going to dive headlong into those or some of those this morning. Um, I certainly don't want to ignore the fact that they are there, though. Perhaps the reason, the main reason we're not going to dive headlong into some of those more um, difficult to interpret passages is because it would be it would be wrong and frankly very arrogant of me to to um, to you know attempt to convince you that I understand fully what those passages mean and how we should respond to them. So we're going to stick most definitely with what we can know for certain, how we can respond to God. But I encourage you if there are things that you find difficult in this area, I encourage you to engage about them, to ask questions. Um, if, you, if, you know, if you want to come to one of the pastors, one of the teaching team, one of your, you know, your life group leader, and say, what about this passage? What does it mean? Then it is absolutely key for us to dive into that together. In fact, I've been reading, starting to read at least, um, uh, A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God which is a great little book, it's about 40 years old, and one of the first things he says in it is that we've given up in the church, and bear in mind this was the, you know, the early 1980-ish he was saying this, um, we've given up 
the pursuit of God as individuals and we're sort of expecting everything on a plate. We've used, started to use this term of accepting Christ, which is not found anywhere in Scripture, and we just accept that, and we expect everything to be kind of spoon-fed to us. And as a church, we've lost the desire to go after God um, and to seek Him. And so I encourage us, let's keep doing that together because that is what we are called, most definitely called to do. So I'd like to start out this morning by revisiting something. This is a verse that you have definitely seen already um, during this series. It's Genesis 1 and verse 27. And it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And what I would like to do here, the reason I'm revisiting this, is because I want to make sure that we're not left with any confusion about this verse. There is a linguistic construct here that doesn't exist in the English language, and particularly as it relates to gender. I want to make sure that um, no one is left with the impression or the perception from this verse maybe that the man, the male, is created in God's image. Oh, and by the way, he also created male and female as an afterthought. See, in the Hebrew, what we have is two words for him and them at the end of these second and third lines here. They're actually the same word in the singular and the plural. So what this verse is really saying is God created mankind in his image. And then he goes on to say he created mankind. In his image, he created mankind. Male and female, he created them. So the word for him is otto. The word for them is otam. It's a singular and plural of the same word. And the difference here, the thing that doesn't exist in English is that this word is a masculine word. Now, if you know French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, you'll be familiar with this idea that words can have gender in language, and we don't have that in English. So, for example, in French, you would say, um, if, when you use the word the, you, you, there are actually two different words. There's le and la, depending on whether the word that it applies to is masculine or feminine. So in French, you would say le téléphone, which means the telephone, and it's a masculine word. There's nothing male about the telephone. Similarly, you would say la rue, which means the street. It's a feminine word. There's nothing female about the street. It's a street or a telephone, but the words actually have gender in the language construct. So what I want to emphasize here before we move on is that God created men and women both in his image. In fact, in the NLT, it's translated this way. The NLT, if you've never looked at Bible translations, the New Living Translation is what is, what is referred to as a thought-for-thought -thought, um, translation. So if you've ever wondered why different translations of the Bible exist and why they're different, well, it's because the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. And so those languages are translated into English for us. And there is no one specific way to get it right. And language changes over time. Right? If you go and read the King James Bible, it's hard to understand, even if you speak English. Even if you speak the Queen's English, it's hard to understand because it uses words that we don't use in common English anymore. And so the, the New Living Translation is more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation as, a as opposed to a literal word-for-word -word type translation. And in the New Living, we read this. We read, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, that is 
slightly further away word for word from what the Hebrew says, but it's actually conveying the meaning of this verse. And I really wanted to get that on the table and make sure that no one has any confusion about that before we go on. And the fact that men and women are most definitely equal in the eyes of God, but also different. God distinguishes between them. Okay, so what are we going to talk about this morning in the main? Well, we're going to cover three principal areas. They all happen to begin with S, which means they all must be true, obviously, because it's alliteration or something like that. And these are things that have come from interactions, the, the you know, aforementioned questionnaire, different conversations, um, study of scripture, and of course, just observation of life. These are three things that we're going to delve into. I'll emphasize here, these are most definitely not the only three things that women in particular might struggle with. These are generalizations. Everything in this series is in some form a generalization. So if you see these things and as we go through the detail of them, you feel like, I'm not sure that really applies to me so much. That's okay. The list isn't wrong. You're not wrong. But this is a generalization. There may also be other things that you think, hmm, this is actually something I really struggle with and he didn't mention it. Same thing. The list isn't wrong, you're not wrong, but please engage on those things. Let's keep a conversation going. So David touched on submission last week, and I'd like to expand a little bit on the meaning, the biblical meaning of submission, and again, any confusion that may exist in this. I'm going to go back to Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23. And I recognize that this is addressing wives specifically, um, but it's also a very clear picture of, um, we'll just say, human-to-human submission in Scripture. And so it's very useful not only for uh, helping to explain or teach about the marriage relationship, um, but also the nature of submission as the Bible describes it. So, what, so Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, in the men's part of this series, we talked about what that means for the husband, for the man. That doesn't mean you're just the boss that gives the orders. It means you're the servant. You're the first one to lay down your life for others, as Jesus did for the church. That's exactly what Paul goes on to say in that chapter in Ephesians. But this is maybe tough on the other side to understand. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What does it mean to submit to your husband? Well, what I want to make clear this morning is that it is not simply about doing what you're told. It's not just a submission of will, like the husband says and the wife does. That is not what Scripture teaches. The full meaning of biblical submission is submitting your whole self to someone or something. That doesn't just mean choices or will, but it means your cares, your concerns, your joys, your burdens, your whole self. And there's a kind of backwards principle in here that we sometimes get all kind of screwed around the wrong way. Because if you don't do this, then the husband isn't actually able to make decisions for his whole family. Think about this with me for a minute. If a wife has concerns or joys, things that she's particularly pleased about, she doesn't share them with her husband. Her husband has no way to take those into account when he's filling his role 
to make decisions for the family. So there's this sort of backwards logic here that if we don't actually submit ourselves in this way, the husband is likely to make more um, self-focused decisions as opposed to decisions for the family because he has less information to go on. He doesn't know the condition of his family so well. So in a, in a, a strange kind of way, not submitting lead, would lead a husband to making decisions that are more of his own choosing or preference or his own guidance and not those of his family. Now, of course, it's the husband's responsibility to listen to those joys and cares and concerns and burdens and to act on them and to not ignore them or make them second place. That's his role um, as the head. And this is kind of similar to our relationship with Christ. I mean, it's said right here in the verse, but it's very similar in the sense that God calls us to bring everything to Him, to not hold things back from Him. He doesn't say, just be my robots and do what I tell you. He says, relate to me, listen to me, bring me your burdens, right? Cast your cares on God because, because He cares for you, Peter writes. So it's mimicking that relationship. Submitting is not just doing what somebody says, it is submitting to their care and responsibility and enabling them to care and be responsible for you. And I've got a couple of slides here with pictures of submission in Scripture that I just want to take a moment to focus on. So here's the first one as it relates to what we're just talking about. And as we get, basically, the way this slide works is as you go down the list, you see a, a relationship of submission in some way. And I'll explain what the lines are for in just a minute. They have a specific meaning, which I definitely want to come to. So what we see in Scripture is that Christ the Son submits to God the Father. We see that man is called to submit to Christ. In fact, David mentioned this um, verse last week. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, that the head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. That's that, those first three levels on this slide. So Christ submits to God the Father, man is called to submit to Christ. In a, in a marriage relationship, certainly, and also in another model we're going to see here in a minute, the, the wife is called to submit to her husband, and children are called to submit to their parents. Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So I want to come to the lines that are on this slide, because this is what start, can start to cause confusion again for us around the meaning of submission. The dashed lines on these slides, on this slide, show where there is an increase in greatness. Let me say that again. The dashed lines on this slide show you where there is an increase in greatness going up the slide. What do I mean by that? Well, in John 14, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, if you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now that starts to make my head explode with the nature of the triune God and how God is one and three persons all in one. But Jesus tells us plainly, the Father is greater than I am. Fact. We know from Scripture that Christ is greater than man. It's written all over Scripture. What we also know from Scripture is that while there is a call to submission within, relation, within human relationships, 
There is nothing in Scripture that tells us that a man is greater than a woman or parents are greater than their children. That is a fallacy. That is not true. So there's a difference in the nature of the submission here. Christ the Son is submitting to God the Father. He's submitting to His will. He's also submitting to someone who He identifies as being greater than Himself. As we submit to Jesus Christ, we're submitting to His will, and we're also submitting to someone who we identify as being greater than ourselves. And that's where those levels stop. When a wife submits to her husband, she is not saying, you are greater than I am. She's saying, you have the responsibility to lead our family, and therefore I submit to your leadership, your care and responsibility. When children submit to their parents, they're most definitely not saying, mom and dad, you're greater than I am, so whatever you say. Anyone experience that? No, I don't think so. But it's also not true. So I want to make sure that that's clear in our minds, because it can be, when we read these verses about submit to your husband as to the Lord, well, there's a difference there, because we are supposed to obey Jesus unconditionally, and He is greater than us. But there's a difference between that husband and wife relationship. So I just want to make sure that that's not, you know, that that confusion is cleared up. And here's another picture of submission um, in the world and outside of the world, I guess, um, how it relates to the church. And I include this just uh, to, to emphasize the fact that submission is not something that's like specific to women or specific to a marriage relationship. So similar kind of pattern to what we've just seen. Christ the Son submits to God the Father, recognizes Him as greater. Colossians 1.18 tells us He is the head, Christ is the head of the church, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have the supremacy or He might be preeminent. So we, we submit to Christ. The church submits to Christ as the head of the body. And then in Hebrews 13, we read, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. These are all submission relationships. And as it works in the church, so it's kind of, it's a little bit, it feels a little bit dangerous as a pastor in this church to stand up here and say this, but I'm, it's just the truth of Scripture. It is not my job to lord authority over anyone in this church. Jesus is very clear about that when he teaches his disciples, when he washes their feet and he says, see what I've done for you. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. So the nature of submission is not to do with, in human terms, it is not to do with greatness. It's not to do with lording power over people. It's all to do with who has the responsibility of care for the other. So that's the first main area we're going to look at. The second, and we're going to tie all three of these together at the end. In case, you, in case you feel like that's hanging a little bit, there's going to be some bigger cliffhangers coming up. There'll be a moment where I just say, yeah, we're just going to leave that hanging. We'll come back to it. The second is success. What does success look like for a Christian woman? This can be especially hard for a woman because they often have competing um, priorities or phases of life around family life, right? If you could kind of draw a picture for men, again, generalizing, where men often have a steady progression through their career, and they achieve what feels like success in the workplace through that career. Women often have 
interrupted professional careers or ones that start and then stop because they're also bringing up children predominantly in, you know, in that phase of life. And so this can look particularly hard. Does success look like being a mother? Is that what success means for me as a Christian woman? Not me, personally. See previous comment, I'm not a woman. Should I have career success? Should I have both of those? Should I have neither of those? Should I look like the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31? Every woman's favorite passage of scripture, I'm sure. And another thing that's a factor here is that often the work that, um, that a Christian woman does receives less recognition than what a Christian man does. That's true in the workplace. We know that from oodles of statistics that tell us that, that women are under-rewarded in the, in the workplace compared to men, and that's a bad thing that needs to be fixed. But it's also true just in terms of... Um, uh, if, you're in, if you're in the professional workplace and you're doing a good job, often you're rewarded. You get pay increases, you get bonuses, you get promotions, you get reward, you get accolades. Or even if it's just kudos from your boss and there's no money behind it, you at least get that. You get some kind of um, recognition. That often doesn't happen. If you're, a, if you're a homeschooling mother in the home with children, your children rarely, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, children included, rarely get to the end of the week and say, thanks, mom, you did a great job teaching this week. Now, I will, I will, um, I don't want to leave my, you know, like throw my children under the bus there. They have done some wonderful things for, for Marie to thank her for the, the work that she does teaching them. But it's often hard. That lack of recognition is a real thing. And it's often, uh, in conversation with Marie this week, she was talking about how it's actually it can be kind of lonely in that position. In, in the workplace, you have peers. Um, our children are not Marie's peers. They're our children. And you've got other, maybe other women who are in the same phase of life and made, we've made the same family choices, right? who maybe they're in the stage of homeschooling children as well or, or bringing up children in a, you know, through a, the public school system or whatever else. And I'm not saying that's the right choice. I'm just saying where you, where you have families that have all made that choice, they're all very busy, like spinning all the plates, juggling all the balls. So for them to actually have time to get together uh, and encourage each other is often very challenging. But I want to encourage you with this. God doesn't value us by what we achieve. Let me say that again. He doesn't value us by what we achieve. He doesn't judge us by what we achieve. Now, is there reward for doing good things for God? Absolutely. He encourages us, store up treasures in heaven, do the work of God. We'll come to that a little bit here. But he doesn't judge us based on what we achieve. If he did, Romans 5.8 would not be in the Bible. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God's attitude towards us were formed by our achievement, our level of success, and our achievement is sin, he would not have sent Jesus into the world to die for us. So that's the first thing that I want to say in response to this kind of difficult area. God does not judge us by our level of success. 
Secondly, what is it that God actually requires of us? A couple of verses here that speak to that. Firstly, in John 6, Jesus is asked, what is the, God, what is the work that God requires? And he responds to the people that he's teaching. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Remember that because we're going to come back to it. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Similarly, in Micah, we read the words, this is Micah prophesying, saying, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Not to achieve some level of status. We all walk different paths. Some women will have highly successful professional careers. Some will not. That doesn't make those first women any more important than the second. It doesn't make any one of them right or wrong. We all walk different paths. It's the same for men, but it's, I think, from what we've seen and heard, a particularly acute problem for women. And I also want to remind you about what does Galatians say? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, those things that are meant to be on display in our lives, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's not, um, well, what we're expected to achieve is, you know, the picture of uh, the woman in Proverbs 31 who's a trader and makes cloth and does all these amazing things. Are those good things? Sure. But is that a measure of success? No. It's interesting, we had sidebar, I'm going off script here, so who knows where this will go, but Marie and I had a bit of a conversation this week about the fruit of the Spirit. I had this impression in my head, and I would really love to hear feedback from what you guys think to this, that these characteristics from the fruit of the Spirit, I think are often demonstrated more readily by women than by men. That's just my observation. And Marie's answer was, I'm not sure. <laughs> Can I get a rain check on that? So I'd love, to hear, I'd love to hear thoughts and just, you know, sidebar conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Just think about it. These are characteristics that we are expected to display, that God wants to see in our lives. And I think that they are more readily displayed, on, again, generalizing, by women than by men. And so if you're ever worried about, am I being successful, I would look to this and say, am I displaying these things in my life? Right, I'll stop my sidebar there in case I just sort of go down a random rabbit hole and say something wrong. So then thirdly, we've got the area of security, or perhaps I should have turned this insecurity, but then it wouldn't have had an S at the beginning. And I've broken this down into three things, and really this is about comparison. That's, at my understanding, this is where... Uh, this, is, this is where insecurity often comes from um, for women, is by comparing to others. And so I've broken this down into three little sub-areas, life status, accomplishment, and body image. And life status is an interesting one, because one thing that we've said all along through this series, and I'll reiterate it here, is that Scripture values motherhood places a value on it, right? We can look at um, Genesis uh, 17, 
where God says, he's speaking to Abraham, and he says about Sarah, I will bless her and will surely give, her a son, give you a son by her. I will bless her that, so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Or we could go to Psalm 127. It says, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Or Psalm 113, where the psalmist writes, he settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. There is this value attached to motherhood. And it's also true that there are women in Scripture who struggle with infertility, the inability to conceive children. Sarah is one of them, right? She was 90 years old before she had Isaac. Rachel is another one. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, is another. So whilst this is true, that Scripture does place a value on motherhood, it's also true that women are not valued simply by their life status. They're valued regardless of that life status. There is nothing less valuable about a single woman or a married woman without children than a mother. Some examples, Deborah, Ruth, Phoebe, who was mentioned last week by David, servant of the church in Sancria, commended to the church. Mary Magdalene is another one, more on her shortly as well. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you read Paul talking about how, in context, how it's better not to marry. Now, I'll say again, this is where we get into sort of slightly muddy waters. Scripture places a value on marriage. Marriage is a blessing. Family is a blessing. Paul is talking in the context here of um, ministry, and what he says is, um, it basically, if you don't have a desire to be married, then don't be, but be devoted, to be fully devoted to the Lord instead, and then you don't have any split in your attention of being, de- be- being devoted. Oh, oh, they were good being devoted to um, a husband as well as the Lord. So there's an advantage in not being married in that you can fully devote yourself to the Lord. But really, the point that I want to make here is that it's easy, I think, for a woman to compare herself to other women and say, I'm not in that position of status that she is. Am I therefore less valuable? And that is not true. Scripture has numerous examples of women who are valued for their devotion to God, for their acts of service, for their choices, regardless of their life, state, their life status. So then the second of these three sub-areas is accomplishment. And this is very similar to the success that I was just talking about, what does success look like? But this is, just bear in mind, this is in the context of comparison. How many women here have compared themselves to the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31 and thought, "Ah, how does she do all of that? I'm never going to do all of that. How many women compare themselves to other women that they know and think, how does she do that? Her kids never seem to have snotty noses or scraped knees. Her house and her minivan are immaculately tidy. She's working a job. She's doing all these crazy things. She's smiling every time I see her. How does she do that? It's interesting how we always compare ourselves to um, 
the, uh, the sort of the, I, I guess what I'll, I'll, I'll say, the good things that we see in others, um, and don't necessarily think like uh, about struggles that other people might be going through. Maybe that's because we're not so good at sharing our struggles. We, you know, the Instagram effect. We like to share our shiny, happy lives, and not necessarily what we're struggling with. Well, this is one I am going to leave hanging for a minute. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. How do we deal with this? And then the third area, the third of these sub-areas, is body image. And this is a difficult one in some ways, a simple one in other ways. The truth is, we read Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's just, let's just turn there and read it while we're... Oops, I went too far. Here we go. Verse uh, 13, we're going to start up. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Women, this applies to you. This is what God says about all of us, including you. And the reality is, you are beautiful. And, and this is where we get, this is where I start to step onto very thin ice, and I have to be careful about how I express this, because I don't want to creep anyone out, but I also want to just talk about what's true and be candid about what's true. The way you are designed is attractive to men. You haven't, it's not that you have been designed solely in order to be attractive to men, but the way that you are designed and put together by God is attractive to men. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We read in Genesis 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married them. Now, we're going to have to skip over the whole big conversation that I just opened about who are the sons of God in this case. We'll come back to that in another series. The fact I want to focus on here is that the daughters of men were seen to be beautiful because they are. The danger here is how we treat this truth. And this is something that I have struggled with personally in the past. It took me a long time to come to a right realization of this. That there is a difference between um, stating, believing, acknowledging that someone is beautiful and being attracted to them and certainly acting on that attraction in thought or word or deed. There's a big difference between those things. And I would guess that many a marriage has been ruined by the lack of understanding between the difference of those things. It's why Proverbs has so many warnings in its early chapters to men especially about you know, pursuing the adulteress. It is, it is okay. I mean, this, is where I'm, this is where I get on thin ice. I have to be very careful how I put this. It is okay to, to recognize that, that it's okay for me to recognize that women other than my wife are beautiful. That's a truth. It's an objective truth. It's not okay for me to, to feel attracted to them and act on that attraction. There's a big difference between those two. And I think this is somewhere where men get tripped up a lot. And that's why I wanted to express it specifically this morning. And the danger is that we place too much value on this, on physical beauty, and not enough on character. Is it good that a, a wife want to, you know, wants to be beautiful to her husband? Yes. Is it good to make a, an effort to do that? Yes, absolutely. But it should never be 
the goal to be like the most beautiful woman in the room. I mean, just, just imagine what Sunday morning on church would be like if everyone was trying to do that. It would be crazy. And I want you to imagine this situation with me for a minute. Just, just, just uh, work with me here for a second. I want, you, I want you to imagine a husband and wife um, at some gathering together, say at a party together, and it's hard to imagine being at a party over, after the last year. But let's imagine you are, husband and wife, stood talking at a party, and a woman walks into the room. A very beautiful woman walks into the room. And the wife sees her and says, uh, or thinks, maybe says out loud, she's really beautiful. Maybe with a touch of envy in her voice. Now, I'm not saying you would say that. I'm just, work with me here. Let's just say that's the hypothetical, right? In theory, that's what's happened. Which of these would be a better and more reassuring response from your husband? Number one. Oh, honey, you're much prettier than she is. Number two, you're right, she is beautiful, but you're the one for me. You're my wife. You're the one I choose. It's a rhetorical question because I know what you're all going to say. There are two problems with that first answer. One is it may not, point of fact, it may not even be true. It, it, it might be false, it might be true. Okay, so one thing we definitely don't want to do is lie. Read the Bible, lying bad, truth good. Okay, that's a good principle to follow. Don't lie. Secondly, if a husband responds like that, what's he actually doing? Without realizing it maybe, he is putting increased emphasis on the importance of physical beauty. He's trying to convince his wife that her physical beauty surpasses this other woman, and that's the most important thing. Not necessarily true. What is it that Scripture says? Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And we completely belittle that if we make the conversation all about who's the most physically beautiful person in the room. Now, I'll restate what I said a few minutes ago. Is it, is it good, is it nice for a, um, for a wife to make an effort to be attractive to her husband? Yes, absolutely. But that should never become the first priority and a husband shouldn't ever insinuate that it should be the first priority. This is what we're to encourage in our wives. The beauty of the inner self, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Right, that's what we read going back to Ephesians 5. Let me just go off script again. Let me just go find Ephesians 5 real quick. The instruction to husbands in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish. It's not talking about physical attributes. Husbands, wash your wives in the word. Encourage them to walk 
in the Lord's ways. Encourage them to have a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth to God. Encourage the beauty of their character more than the beauty of their bodies. So what is it that all of these three things have in common? The thing that they all come back to is value. And this is, I think, where the struggles come from. If I submit to somebody, does that make me less valuable than them? If I don't feel like I'm succeeding, do I have as much value? Do I feel insecure because I don't feel valued in visible ways, ways that are seen by others? What I want to emphasize to you and could emphasize all day is you are valuable regardless of those things. A couple of verses to address this, and I'm going to close with uh, a passage from John and an exhortation to you. The first verse is from John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Women who have received Christ, this, I'm not reading from John still, this is Julian speaking, even though I'm looking at my Bible, just to be clear. Women who have received Christ, who have believed in his name, you are children of God. And in fact, one thing I didn't come back to that I said I was going to earlier was the example of Lydia. We turn to uh, Acts um, 16. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. She was doing exactly what Jesus said in John 6, 29. The work of God is to believe in the one that he has sent. She was doing exactly what she was called to do as a Christian woman. Second verse I just want to touch on, Matthew 10. We go 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Sparrows were cheap in that day. Does anyone sell sparrows now? I don't know. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Not about what you produce, um, how successful you are. It's about being valued for who you are. And here's what I want to close with. I'm going to turn to John chapter 20. Feel free to read along with me if you like. The first part of John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, 
But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand that Jesus, that, from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I want you just to think about the context that we're in here. Jesus, who has existed from since before time, through whom all things were created, has existed with the Father in the heavens, has come to earth at the Father's will, been born as a baby, lived 30-something years on the earth, had several years, two, three years of public ministry, has taught, performed miracles, and ultimately gone to the cross and to the grave, has just risen from the dead. This is the crowning moment of his work right here. This is, I mean, we call the triumphal entry the time that he arrived into Jerusalem the week before Easter, but in a lot of ways, this is a more triumphal entry. He's about to show his followers, that he has defeated death and he is alive. He has the entire choice of time and space in which he can reappear and reveal himself. Does he go to the disciples who are going to lead the church in the future? No. He appears to Mary. Regardless of her status, there's a lot of debate out there about who Mary was whether she was the, the woman of ill repute that's talked about in Luke 7 or not. Not that Luke says that, but we don't know. But she certainly doesn't, there's, there's no status attached to her in Scripture, right? What we do know is that she was demon-possessed. Jesus cast out seven demons from her. So when, when Jesus met her, she would have been in a mess for sure. She wouldn't have had any of the measures of success that we like to stack ourselves up against, any of the life status we like to stack ourselves up against. But it's simply this. 
She's devoted to the Lord, and she stood there weeping because she doesn't know where he is. It's interesting that Jesus actually gives her an instruction to go to the disciples and tell them something because they have a job to do. We're back to roles and responsibilities. Here's a message for them because they have a role to fulfill. But if they were more important, Jesus would just have appeared to them directly. But he chooses Mary because she's devoted to him. She's a daughter of the king. Women of God, you are daughters of the king. And I exhort you, be devoted to God first and foremost. Do not be troubled about what your, what, your life, what your life status looks like, how you define success in your life. Do not be troubled by those things. Walk the path that God has put in front of you. Be devoted to Him. This life, after all, is just the warm-up for the rest of eternity. This is not all we get to do or achieve. Pursue God and be devoted to Him. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, you are great and wonderful. You are far above any of us. We thank you for how you have created us. We thank you for the way that you have designed us. We thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we pray that you would help us as we struggle with things that may be difficult to understand or, or help us as we try to find our fit in your design. We pray that you would help us as believers to submit to you, to walk in your ways, to recognize your goodness, to accept your goodness even when we don't understand how it works out. We pray that you would help us to live by the truth of Scripture and by the, your goodness in our lives and by the Spirit that you place in us as your sons and daughters. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. Um, so everybody can stand up with me now, please. We're going to sing our final song here. This is a newer song. For, we haven't really sung it here before. It goes really well with Julian's message today. and just uh, It's one of those worship songs. Sometimes the worship songs are directly to God, and sometimes they're more of reminders to ourselves. And this is one of those preach the gospel type songs. And so as we, as we sing this, let's um, just keep in mind that our redemption is in Christ, and, and that's where we get our value from. So.